Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia in Focus newsletter. On April 30th, Uzbekistan will hold a national referendum to approve a new constitution. Amendments prepared by a government-appointed committee affect some 65% of the current constitution, but the change that's attracted the most attention is the extension of the presidential term from five to seven years. The controversy over this term extension has overshadowed other changes that, on paper, seem to represent positive steps in reforming Uzbekistan's legislation. It's not the only controversy connected to this referendum. The violence in Uzbekistan's western Karakal Pakistan Republic on July 1st and 2nd, 2022, will also always be linked with this upcoming referendum and new constitution. To discuss all this and more, I am joined by Nabahar Imamova, a veteran correspondent for the Uzbek service at Voice of America and host of America Avazi program, Alishir Ilhamov, director of Central Asia Due Diligence, who has written many articles about Uzbekistan, including some articles about the trials of protesters in Karakal, Pakistan. All are posted on senasiadudiligence.uk, and that's senasiadudiligence, one word, .uk. And Steve Sverdlov, a rights lawyer who has spent many years focusing on Central Asia and is currently an associate professor of the practice of human rights at the University of Southern California. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, and uh, Nabahar, I'd like to start with you, if I could, because I'm, well, I'm curious about Uzbekistan's people and how they view this new constitution. Uh, the government commission that drafted it said they were working on the principle of society is the initiator of reforms. Uh, in the days leading up to the referendum, the message at public events staged by the state is my constitution, your constitution, our constitution. What do people in Uzbekistan you speak with say about the re- upcoming referendum and new constitution? Hello, Bruce. Thanks for having me in the show. It's always great to be on this podcast. You know, as much as the Uzbek officials disagree, as much as the Uzbek lawmakers disagree with this assessment, the current campaign in Uzbekistan mostly reminds the Kareem of period propaganda, which is a clear backsliding. Last two elections in Uzbekistan that I covered up close, specifically the parliamentary election in 2019, and even the presidential election in 2021 did have some nuances. And while we didn't see any opposition in the picture, it did provide some space for criticism in the media, in public events, featuring live discussions, live broadcasts, debates debates, heated exchanges, and the media and citizens in general seemed quite energized in 2018 elections, for example. Reporters and producers uh, seemed more confident and relatively freer in their work. The presidential election campaign in 2021, just to compare with, started with a similar spirit, but it, it eventually turned into a tightly controlled operation. This time around, the control is um, sturdier. It's been so um, so far, the Uzbek media have been instructed to provide as much positive programming as possible, showcase that people want change, that the society is eager to have a new basic law, the, sh- the Uzbek show business, art and culture community, education sector, businesses even have been urged uh, to promote the referendum, which means they must sing the praises of the policies in place, emphasize that the reforms are bearing fruits and that Uzbekistan is on the right path, the path of democracy, that is, and through various events, demonstrate, um, you know, gratitude for the changes Uzbekistan has seen under President Mirziyoyev, project trust in him, show support uh, of him. So this referendum campaign has been featuring, you know, open-air concerts, singing and dancing, and basically expression of optimism through performances by popular singers, poets, and writers, motivational speeches by business leaders, and um, it even has involved foreign-based Uzbeks, including here in the United States. Um, there was a delegation in Washington earlier this month uh, from Tashkent. President Mirziyoyev's foreign policy advisor, Abdulaziz Kamilov, was here, Senate's first chair, uh, Sadiq Safayev, and head of the De- Development Strategy Center in Tashkent, Eldar Tulakov. They all told the Biden administration and others here that it is the uh, people of Uzbekistan, as you just mentioned, who want change, uh, who want 
to change the constitution and that more than 2,000 proposals poured in from across the country and that the referendum is the will of the people. But if we examine the background, we see how this evolved. Uh, we know that President Mirziyoyev wanted this uh, for a while now. He's been pushing to amend the constitution for years. His inauguration speech in uh, 2021 following his re-election made that very clear. But then last spring, the newly formed uh, then the Constitutional Commission came out with a narrative that argued that this was what the, the Uzbek people wanted. It caused much debate then on social media. It's still, uh, that debate is still on, um, on Uzbek social media, but the establishment kept on repeating it so much that it backfired in Karkal, Pakistan. We know that. Thousands came out protesting, denying that the system, denying what the system was insisting. Basically saying, no, this is not what we want. Why are you doing this without consulting with us, without discussing with us, and more importantly, without informing us. So following those events in Nukuz, which cost 21 lives, we have to keep in mind, uh, the Merzioyev administration seemed to reanalyze the whole strategy a bit. It postponed the referendum. But President Mirziyoyev is determined to get this done, as we see, you know, as soon as possible. So based on everything I've been hearing and watching, Bruce, I am predicting humbly <laughs> that the citizens, the citizens of Uzbekistan will be asked to cast another vote by the end of the year. I think the Mirziyoyev administration is working on it. Um, I will be really, really surprised if Uzbekistan won't hold a presidential election within a few months after this referendum to seal, to ensure a, a new term for Mirziyoyev under this new constitution, thus uh, clearing the way for him to run again um, in seven years. So, you know, I asked the Uzbek delegation visiting recently about how the Uzbek parliament was going to nullify Mirziyoyev's two terms so far with this new constitution. Uh, simple question, right? <laughs> they said that this issue was not even on the agenda. And that's not true at all. Um, this has been on the agenda. And the vision, uh, you know, this has been the vision from the, from the very beginning. And, and if you listen to the public, especially on social media, you hear that. You know, that, that public opinion echoes this prediction, this kind of a mood in Uzbekistan right now. Well, thank you, Navahar. Uh, appreciate that, and especially the, the thought of a snap election before the end of the year. That's interesting. Um, Ali Sher, I want to ask you, kind of in the same vein, I mean, you've been watching, you know, these elections and referenda in, in Uzbekistan for, for, you know, decades now. Also, you know, strangely, the last referendum, national referendum they held was in 2002, and it also approved extending the presidential term from five to seven years. Obviously, it was later reduced back to five years again. But is there anything new about the way they're going, the way the government's going about changing the Constitution and holding this referendum? Anything new at all for, compared to previous events, similar events? The new is uh, that, uh, first of all, they, they kind of uh, now adopting not just um, uh, amendments, they're going to uh, vote for the some selected number of amendments, but it's uh, presenting as a new constitution, first one. Last year, they were just uh, planning to, to make some a number of amendments, uh, let it be kind of a big number of them, but still specific amendments. Now we're talking about a new constitution from formal point of view, formal legal point of view. Second is... Uh, of course, the nullifying Mirziyoyev's current presidential terms it was the main kind of central point, uh, main motivation behind kind of initiating these amendments and the new constitutions. But the way how they're going to nullify is a little bit uh, very uh, not uh, distinct from the past. What what happened now? This, the, the the constitution itself doesn't sell anything about uh, nullification. Uh, it's, it says that actually the, all the key positions in, in the government, uh, including the president, has a kind of limits uh, for, for being uh, to be elected by two terms only, two consecutive uh, terms. But and it was not clear how what how would it apply to the already ongoing second uh, term of uh, Mirziyoyev for, for the moment. And only constitutional court made a point several days ago. They stated that this constitution, uh, this position, especially the provision of uh, limiting by two terms for presidential term, 
would apply and would they would not consider Travis kind of the uh, his uh, kind of the background and you know, his kind of the the fact that he is holding to two terms, right? And it kind of uh, they would kind of pretend as uh, he would not uh, start from the kind of from the zero point. You understand? This was just uh, the statement. Uh, the uh, clarification was made uh, several days ago by constitutional court. I was expecting initially that after the ad- adoption of this constitution, only later they will decide that we have a new reality and therefore uh, Mirzoev has a right to, to go for the second for uh, another kind of term because we have a new country, a new kind of law. Now they already made such specification, kind of such clarification that uh, this kind of the notification would apply immediately, despite the fact that the old constitution, the current constitution, limits his uh, kind of terms by two, and the new one also limits by two. But the, the, what is between them? So they kind of uh, making point that the, the previous terms will not be counted. But I have uh, made uh, another kind of very important findings. Uh, I just made analysis well before this kind of uh, majlis, this podcast. What I have found that actually this, uh, there are some indications that in fact, despite all these claims and the statements that these uh, constitutions allow for going further with uh, along reforms, in fact, the new provisions are in, kind of uh, made in this on the key positions, on the key points. I would just clarify some later. Only make this current system governments moving towards the monarchy. Do you understand? It's towards more autocracy. Why? Because the the for instance, the key positions in the in the in the government, you know, like for instance, prime minister or the the prosecutor general, they their candidates would be presented to the parliament, and the parliament would not indo- uh, kind of approve. These candidates, but will just endorse. They use the, if you take kind of the, use the Russian language, instead of utvrdit, uh, they're using adobrit. In Uzbek, it's instead of tasitlash, uh, they use the makulash, makulash, instead of tasitlash. That means the, the parliament is going to be uh, consulted only on these positions, and uh, they would be expected just to endorse, not to approve. That means, that means in fact, actually, or de facto, or the euro, that parliament itself is turning from the kind of body which has a kind of certain powers, at least formal powers, to approve certain key positions in the government system, now t- turning into the just consulting body. And uh, the, the, the kind of final decision to approve the prime minister, the ministers, uh, prosecutor general, not to say about the, the chairperson of the uh, National Security Service, the, the state security service, which is uh, even not to be kind of endorsed, uh, expected not to be endorsed, uh, but just consulted. That means all these powers are going to the president. This is a conclusion that one can make uh, upon this kind of the uh, language used by this new constitution. This is my main findings I have done. No, this is very interesting. You know, in fact, so because you know, uh, Kazakhstan went through the same thing last year in approving a new constitution, right? But part part of that was supposed to be that more power would be or powers would be transferred from the executive branch to the legislative branch. But your um, your research seems to indicate that that it's the opposite in Uzbekistan that actually the executive power is is gaining uh, more out of this at the expense yeah yeah of so he kind of acquiring on the top of his executive powers he acquiring more legislative powers more legislative powers to endorse uh, in fact the, the key positions in the government system such as uh, as I said prime minister the the, the the members of cabinet of ministers. And uh, the the prosecutor general. This is three key uh, kind of main kind of positions going to be finally approved if to read properly the the language because they they, they amended they substitute the, the word approval by the word uh, endorsement. Endorsement is not approval. It's something uh, has been missed uh, by the kind of the public by the experts. I would just maybe just ask. Uh, Maybe uh, you uh, to kind of to maybe to comment how you understand these kind of the amendments in the in the language of this constitution. My understanding is it's just indication that of uh, transferring more powers 
from the parliament, even formal. Let it be kind of just formal uh, powers. Let it be, uh, this parliament, uh, parliament to be kind of the pocket parliament. But even the mind is saying that the, par- the president doesn't trust even such a parliament, such a kind of a pocket parliament, maybe expecting in the future kind of the intensifying the powers, uh, I mean, the struggle for power and uh, depriving the, the parliament even of those formal powers which has have on, on kind of appointing the key positions in the government system. Huh. Okay. Uh, thank you, Alishir. Uh, that is, uh, these are interesting points. Nabahor, maybe Nabahor would comment how she understands this, this words Tashkitlash uh, and Makulash. Well, um, I haven't heard any analysis of this, um, and this is a very cute observa- acute obser- observation by you, obviously, Alisher. I don't think um, many Uzbek lawmakers who have approved this draft have thought of that. At least I haven't heard of any conversations or any debates uh, on this. But there is a difference between the word tasqalash and maqullash, as you say. And I agree with your uh, interpretation of this. So this would be really something interesting to watch, the semantic differences, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Steve, do you want to say something? Because uh, I certainly have a lot of questions for you coming here. Yeah, no, and I know we're going to get more into the weeds of how the different amendments, um, actually what they do legally contribute or change or or add or subtract from Uzbekistan's very at-risk democratic project. But but I'll just start by saying that I read a quote of an analyst that, that this line started like this, an article that said, few doubt that the prolongation of the presidential term in Uzbekistan's referendum paves the way for presidency for life. And that was actually the first line of an article that Ali Sher El-Hamov on this very podcast wrote about the constitutional referendum that extended Islam Karimov's term 20 years ago. And for me, you know, when I, when I read those words, Ali Sher, I, I, I just thought to myself that not only is this deja vu, but you know, for those of us that root for reforms, that care about human rights, progress, and democracy, and follow it as closely. And there are no, there are no two people who are more expert on these issues than Nabor and Alijer. This is really a death knell for the reform project. It's, it's extremely consequential, and, and it doesn't have to be, can't be overstated just how fundamental this April 30th event will be for, in a way, closing a chapter. If indeed, unless we see the president step up and or the constitutional court or other voices, prominent voices, explicitly limit his term and explicitly clarify or submit a, an amendment that clarifies that indeed his terms will be limited and that will, there will be no nullification, no zeroing out, then really we've entered a, a new phase, a phase in which Mirzoyev's term is enshrined essentially for life. And it really undermines everything that I think the government has stated about its ambitious reform agenda for years, as much as the crackdown on bloggers and and other areas of human rights have faltered. I think this is very fundamental and really deserves a lot of attention from all the international actors, such as the human rights high commissioner who was just there, also the EU human rights commissioner who was just there. I know they were raising these issues, but unfortunately, the government and the president himself are not reassuring these partners or the people that 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 there will not be in this for life presidency. And so I I'm looking very closely at that, but I'm just struck again first and foremost uh, it, uh, we have to start with that déjà vu that that the man that came in saying that everyone was exhausted by the stagnation and the depression of the Karima period is now reenacting those same tactics and techniques. That I think is a major, major disappointment. I think we should begin with that. And everything that flows from that, yes, there are many innovations that deserve close analysis. But I'm just going to start with the with the call to, to the government, or to the president in particular, to give a press conference in which he clarifies that this is not going to result in nullification. Of course, I think you know, Nabuha reads the situation better than anyone and has really tried to probe for those sorts of analyses, and they're not, they're not forthcoming. But I think amidst the otherwise deteriorating human rights record, the forced evictions that we've seen, you know, I think Alisher's point is extremely interesting about the parliament. Again, it's been a stated goal of the government. And even we should say, even during Karimov's late period, 
where he tried to talk about the importance of the Oli Majlis before his death, you know, we did have the most independent MP resign under pressure, Rasul Kusharbayev, in December. So we've been watching this uh, encroaching executive power in a way. In some ways, you know, the old habits really do die hard. And the, the stage managed aspects of this campaign with the dancers and singers is, is all too much deja vu. But I do want to say, I think the, this new period in Uzbekistan also, even this referendum, I want to, you know, end my first comment on a more hopeful note, which is that I think it was you now before that circulated a satirical video by, uh, from Jahangir Ahmedov. And this was a, uh, it seems like it's going viral right now. It's a, a video of, of a teacher in a school. And the principal is coming in and, you know, they're saying no forced labor, no forced labor, no one's going to the cotton fields, but you have to vote, you have to vote. And it's a brilliant satire of what Uzbekistan's democracy currently looks like, which is that there's a lot of rhetoric about choice and about dialogue between the government and the people, which has been the main theme of this government for the last six years. And yet uh, that underlying pressure, the pressure on bloggers, uh, the pressure on journalists, the unwritten lines, the unseen, the unspoken limits on freedom of expression are more than ever being felt. And I think that is something that we all have to pay attention to. So I'll, that'll just begin there, Bruce, if that's too general. No, no, I mean, that, that, that's great. Um, you know, and let's, let's start this. We're getting close to the halfway point, but I want to uh, get into the, some of the other changes in the Constitution, too, which you are, are you know, absolutely the most qualified person I can think of to comment on is some of these changes in the law that's happening. You know, there, there's obviously this document is much longer than the old document. There's many more articles in this one. They elaborate points in uh, in the previous constitution to kind of tease tease out thoughts and stuff. So it's it's there's a lot of things included in the draft this draft constitution that that weren't there or weren't as well explained in the the constitution that they're currently using. Uh, and one I'm thinking of is what, the habeas corpus. For instance, yes. can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I, I was struck by this, and I think you know, you Bruce and I, we spoke about this offline. That there are some things that reflect the some of the reform moves, or what the what the government res- considers its most important achievements in the area of human rights over the past several years, and you can almost hear the voice of um, the human rights minister. You know, some call him a chief propagandist, but he certainly considers himself the expert on human rights issues. That's that's Akamal Saeedov. You can almost hear his voice in this draft because in the new articles, um, looking at the draft of the Constitution, we see Articles 27, 28, 29, 30, 31 are codifying things that you might normally only see in a cr- in a criminal code or a criminal procedure code. Which, interestingly to me, the reason this Constitution is now so long is that it seems that the government really wants to double down and emphasize its achievements, its progress in certain criminal justice areas in particular, like habeas corpus. And if we remember, after Andijan, the government had very little to show for itself in the way of human rights progress of any kind. It was an extremely dark period after the Andijan massacre. And three years later, amidst sanctions that were only slowly coming off of Uzbekistan, amidst a deep isolation, Karimov implemented the habeas corpus, which is the right, you know, from the Latin term, it's the right to know the charges against you, to be brought before a judge, to explain the legality of your detention. And the reason that's so important is because we know that torture often happens right after a person's detained in the first two or three days. And it used to be in Uzbekistan that you could be detained for 72 hours, but now it's been codified here and earlier in the criminal code that in line with international law, you can only be detained up to 48 hours, which is the international standard. So that's found its way into this draft, which I found interesting because it seems to say that the government wants the world to know that there are certain norms of criminal justice that and I think it, it feels it's been criticized over for many years, but it deserves, in a way, recognition for accepting these norms and, and, and actually placing them directly into the Constitution. Same, same, I should say, goes for the death penalty, which is, in a way, an even more prominent achievement. And I want to recognize here that there would be no moratorium on the death penalty. There would be no abolition of the death penalty without the heroic, and I'm sure Alisha Nabohor remember her name, Tamara Chikunova was a, was a human rights defender who, who passed, who, who's no longer with us. But her son was on death row, and she campaigned uh, about the need to reject 
and, and, and ban the death penalty. And so that's also in this constitution. I think it's interesting that those two achievements are really trumpeted up front. Good. And we're going to come right back to that in a second. Um, cause I want to, want to get into this a little bit more about some of these other changes in the constitution, but we have reached a halfway point in our discussion. So it is time for me to remind that this is the Medjilis podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I am Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjilis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. And we're talking about the upcoming constitutional referendum in Uzbekistan and what changes with this constitution. And, and joining me to discuss this are Ali Ohamov, director of Central Asia Due Diligence, who has written many articles about Uzbekistan, some of which you can find on the website senaziadudiligence.uk and senaziadudiligence is one word, dot UK. Uh, Steve Sverdlow, a rights lawyer who spent many years focusing on Central Asia and is currently an associate professor at, of practice of human rights at the University of Southern California. And Nabahar Imamova, veteran correspondent for the Uzbek service at Voice of America and the host of the weekly weekly program, America Al-Wazi. Is that right, Nabahar? Yes, correct. Okay, good. I just wanted to clarify it was the weekly show. Steve, I'm going to come back to you right away for a second, and then I, will, uh, I want everyone to come in on this. There's there's a lot of changes. I mean, we mentioned habeas corpus, but there's changes in, in the rights to, about for women. I mean, they seem to have taken a little bit from some of these recommendations that they've supposedly been getting from the public. You know, that you can't uh, discriminate against women who have children. That can't be the reason for not hiring them or for dismissing them uh, because they have children at home that they need to take care of or are pregnant. Uh, there's there's ish- articles that address, seem to address a little bit obliquely, uh, home demolitions in Uzbekistan. In the rights of uh, children with special educational needs to, to receive inclusive education, things like that. So, I mean, there are some nuggets of, that seem to be positive in this constitution. Is that, would you say? I, I, I would. And I mean, the proof is going to be, as always, in the implementation. On, on forced evictions, we should say, you know, we've just had very recently, I think it was just a month ago in March, uh, finally, after a five-year odyssey, one of the one of the residents of Tashkent, Olga Abdullayeva, who was fighting in the courts to prevent her forced eviction, was finally pushed out of her home. And in that case, it, it seems to be very clear that someone very close to the president's family is is behind that eviction. And so, you know, again, we have this contradiction. We have this constitution which enshrines some important human rights norms and does, as the rhetoric has centered, you know, centering the person. This is about the interest. This is a societal state. Interests of the person are paramount. That's actually in Article 20. Um, we even had, you know, Bruce, as you and I discussed, the role of international law is reaffirmed as being of importance to the country, which I found extremely interesting, given that it goes against what Kyrgyzstan did a few years ago in response to international human rights criticism, which was reduce and minimize the importance of international law in that constitution. What Uzbekistan has done is said, no. We adhere to international law. International law is on par with our domestic law. And I mean, of course, in, in theory, this provides a whole new generation of human rights defenders and journalists and activists and analysts with a lot of fodder to advance the reforms in Uzbekistan. And yet we see, as, as Ali Sher, I think Nabuhor have, have, have shown in their comments that the reality of, of the way this is happening and the way the courts are behaving increasingly is to really turn back a page um, but I think it was important, Bruce, I'll just won't go on too long, but you mentioned education and, of course, and, and gender. Um, the one bright spot, undoubtedly, without any question over the past year or more, is the new law criminalizing domestic violence, which, again, we have to give credit to the activists you had on your show, I think, last week or the week before, um, who, who have been amazing, but also inclusive education. And, I, you know, I think it is true that there is a development, there's, there is an evolution towards uh, certainly putting the Soviet legacy of internati and terrible institutionalized approaches to persons with disabilities, putting that behind the country, or at least trying to turn a page. Uh, also on rehabilitation in Article 55 and the ability to get recourse and go to an international court. I mean, these are really quite interesting. I'd be curious to hear what, what, what Nabor and Alicia have to say about those specific provisions. Now, this is what I want to get into. I, you know, I'm going to ask, I am going to ask, uh, Nabahar, we'll start with you, but Ali Shir, I'm going to let you, you go after Nabahar. You know, is this, is this kind of like a, um, 
you know, to balance the whole thing, I mean, a lot of people are suspicious that yeah, obviously the Constitution is all about keeping Mirzuev in power. So are they giving these little bits, in your opinion, you know, improvements in legislation? Is that kind of in some way make it, it more acceptable to the public to extend Mirzuev's term because they're actually getting some more better what at least on paper they seem to have more rights and there's a whole different section of you know various groups that are getting these rights too what what are you what are your thoughts on that well bruce we have to uh keep uh, several at least a couple of uh, important factors here in mind overall you don't see or you don't sense an opposition to these changes to these amendments among the public uh, I, I haven't heard of any, uh, like, you know, denunciations or any kind of, um, uh, you know, harsh criticism of any any part of it. I, the, the most, mostly people are debating the presidential term because they can see what's coming. They can smell uh, what's coming next. But otherwise, uh, you know, people are happy to read these, uh, th- this draft. It's been available in Uzbek, Russian, and English for a, wh- for a while now. And if you turn on TV uh, in Uzbekistan, the Uzbekistan, Uzbek media, state, independent, private, all of them are discussing these, you know, changes. And the main argument they constantly hear is that this one reflects uh, where Uzbekistan is and should be and must go to, you know, based on the, these changes. Uh, the, the government is arguing that these reforms will establish Uzbekistan as a sovereign, democratic, legal, social, and secular state with a republican form of state. So those are that those are the kinds of like uh, you know, stressed points that Uzbek public has been uh, listening to. And and again, uh, you don't really hear much, you know, specific uh, criticism other than uh, the, the presidential term changing. And the second factor is that the government seems, at least based on my analysis, seems quite aware of the cynicism within the public towards these changes. Um, they hear the people out, you know, out and loudly saying, well, you know, so far, the, the government and the leadership hasn't really been good at following the Uzbek constitution, the existing constitution. So what makes us think that they will be now honoring the new one, right? So that's like a general sort of cynical points that you hear both on social media and just in, you know, in day-to-day Uzbekistan now. And the government doesn't necessarily directly respond to that. They're just increasing that, what I described earlier, the the cream of period-like propaganda, just stress, repeat, and repeat. So, um, yes, I mean, people do acknowledge that there are positive changes uh, that are at least on paper, you know, being uh, guaranteed and insured. I mean, Steve discussed the human rights. uh, The government says it's been human rights related. Parts of the Constitution um, have multiplied like three and a half times. So, you know, there is this quantitative analysis. And of course, you know, we have to also mention that this new Constitution will also uh, guarantee where state will uh, guarantee freedom of all religious organizations actively operating in Uzbekistan's laws, freedom of media activity covering uh, their rights to seek, receive, use, and disseminate information. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, it's, it talks about impeding or interfering with the activities of mass media in Uzbekistan uh, is now being determined uh, by a cause for uh, legal liability. Uh, and then a constitutional norm is now introduced on the creation by the state of conditions for providing access to the internet. So the fact that these are specifically mentioned, uh, argue lawmakers, uh, you know, these are pieces of progress uh, for Uzbekistan. So uh, I would, uh, you know, I would generally argue that the, 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 the positive changes are recognized. People admit that these changes are being, um, you know, guaranteed and they get it. But again, there is very, you know, there isn't much credibility in the state itself to follow up to these, uh, you know, to these basic laws now that the many Uzbek officials call norms. Can, can I come in real quick? I know Ali Sher was going to uh, just be while it's on my mind, Bruce, uh, as Navarro was speaking, I, I had a thought. Yeah, go ahead, please. Just to say that, I mean, Nabor is absolutely right. It, it is really significant. For example, I, I didn't uh, pay as close attention to to the, the sort of the codification of journalists' right to seek and receive information. That's also fundamental to human rights. But as I as we sit here and talk about this, what I am what is so striking 
And looking at this constitutional draft, also Article 142, it codifies lawyers' access to their clients, which was another huge issue that we've all followed for years, um, which is, you know, lawyers showing up to the security services building and then games being played with them to prevent them from seeing their clients during the interrogations. What's interesting about this is that while all these provisions look great, uh, isn't it interesting that the civil society working groups that have tried to work closely over the past five years with the government to implement codes, individual criminal codes, the code on the legal profession, the code on NGOs, all of those efforts have sort of died in infancy or you know, you know, d- died in darkness or in silence. And that would be the level on which civil society groups uh, or the, the legal profession or a union of journalists could actually more concretely point to, uh, to, to, to concrete rights. Whereas I think the, the danger here is that these provisions that, that exist only in the Constitution or the, at this highest level, they would, I guess, require litigation at the constitutional court or in a much more nebulous realm than what we're used to seeing in the day-to-day operations of society. And so, therefore, it's, um, I'm, I'm very torn about this, but it, it's, it's, we have to recognize that all these processes, all these conversations that have found their way into the Constitution have stalled at the level of real, even legal regulations, let alone, uh, let alone you know, other concrete evidence in, in society. And I'll, I'll just say that. Okay, thanks. Uh, Ali Shir, your thoughts on some of these other changes? Yeah, actually, uh, I think uh, each uh, authoritarian regime is uh, kind of uh, is uh, trying to balance between two different extremes. On the one hand, to at least to achieve uh, and uh, maintain certain level of uh, or degree uh, political legitimacy, I mean, kind of the consent of the population with uh, uh, his uh, rule or the, some kind of the relationship with the international community. This is on the one hand. On the other hand, is kind of still uh, ensuring kind of control over power without being kind of properly and uh, democratically elected. So between two balancing business, between two two different uh, kind of extremes, kind of making the reality actually the how he's uh, conducting his uh, kind of the kind of his uh, his system, how he's ruling his system. So now we see the shift uh, toward you know in the past actually, for instance. Uh, as a rule, actually, if your kind of political legitimacy kind of declining, the more you're resorting to the the harsh methods of controlling the power, kind of including the repressions, uh, restrictions of freedoms, uh, civil freedoms, freedom of expression, and so on. But now we see the a little bit different different situation when uh, the, the the constitution indicates that uh, there are going to be some shift towards presidential powers at the expense of the the, the parliament. This creates certain inter- interesting kind of paradoxical situation when in order to man- still maintain the political uh, legitimacy and the kind of some relationship with the major uh, Western democratic powers in, in the world, uh, the, the regime would uh, be forced to, to provide uh, some more kind of the concessions in the field, for instance, of human rights. And we have seen already lately when the, some legislation was adopted on the uh, rights of the women, of women. Uh, there are some other minor changes uh, taking place in, in, uh, in, uh, in the legal system and uh, even in reality. So my point is that actually uh, we see the, that the, the, there are still kind of uh, such a power of the Senate to elect the Constitutional Court, uh, the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Judicial Council is still in informal power of, of Senate. Uh, and the question was uh, this, especially the Supreme Judicial uh, Council, if it's properly elected, uh, clear, that would bring us to, towards more closely to the, the establishing rule of law, which is the kind of uh, probably the, the key question for the moment. Even if it's actually the president, the Mirzoev actually even go further towards uh, uh, kind of towards the uh, autocracy, the autocratic, autocratic rule. There are still opportunities to combine the situation with some improving in the field of uh, improving things in the field of uh, rule of law. You know, in the history we have such precedent. For instance, in nineteenth century, when the, in Germany that was still a kind of monarchic rule, but at the same time they managed to establish a relatively kind of independent judiciary. 
and only democracy came only in the beginning of uh, the 20th century. So why not to happen in something similar to in Uzbekistan? I have some doubts it would actually take place in reality, but I have still some kind of some opportunities. And the question whether the the regime of Mirziyoyev would have some sufficient uh, political powers to f- to make real steps towards establishing rule of law, and f- for instance, to to let the Supreme uh, Judicial Council to be elected really democratically. Uh, with some kind of uh, support from uh, legal experts, uh, lawyers, and, and also international community. Okay, thanks. And actually, that, that helps me to do the transition we, to the last part of the program because we are just about out of time. Um, I'm curious about what this what this is going to do to Uzbekistan's reputation. Both Mirziyoyev, he's been say, talking about new Uzbekistan, and yet, as we've already heard on the program, so much of this is, is already old. But, I, I mean, what... Uh, there have been a lot of people who have engaged with Uzbekistan since Karimov died because they thought that it was, it was new Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan was changing. I mean, uh, keeping in mind that he's scheduled to go to Germany the day after the referendum is held. Uh, and I heard today that he's also going to be making a, an official visit to the Czech Republic later this year, too. So it seems like the West is going along with the system. Does this change Uzbekistan's international reputation? And I'll, Ali Shir, I'll start with you. You know, if you remember what happened with uh, Karimov years ago, when uh, he first he was invited to to Czech Republic, and then the, uh, the after kind of the, the pressure from civil society, he was not admitted, so he was forced to to cancel. So it, he found himself in such international isolation, which uh, very much damaged his. Uh, uh, kind of the the, pro, the international profile. In my understanding, one of the main motifs behind some limited reforms uh, undertaken by Mirziyoyev was to avoid such a fate, to to to, to get isolated in, internationally, and he managed to do so actually by making some improvements in the, in terms of human rights, uh, for instance, uh, abolishing the the forced labor and child labor in the cotton industry. In some other areas, or some way, some limited number of improvements. So this would something would keep him from uh, going too too far towards kind of autocratic uh, and repressive rule. There might be some kind of the option that he will still establish uh, even kind of more autocratic rule, at the same time combined with some improvements in the field of uh, rule of law, in the field of human rights, such a kind of bizarre combination of uh, kind of monarchic, monarchic rule with some uh, some some kind of uh, rooms for uh, human rights, for civil society, and for the for the independence of the judiciary. Okay, Nabahar, what do you think? What does this do to Uzbekistan's image, the new constitution? Bruce, um, you know, there is very little doubt that this draft will not be um, approved, right? This is going to get approved on April um, 30th, and the government is going to coin this as a new compact between the state and the people, and that it'll be this responsible system, and that President Mirziyoyev has a new mandate. And despite all these changes we've been discussing so far in terms of giving more power to the parliament, to local administrations, President Mirziyoyev will remain the super president of Uzbekistan, but internationally, Tashkent will promote this as a new constitution where the government is now entrusted with the tasks of ensuring openness and transparency, legality and efficiency uh, of the work uh, of the executive authorities, improving the quality and accessibility of public services, providing effective functioning of the social protection system, and supporting civil society. So that's where they'll be really, really uh, stressing internationally. And I think the next stage is really important here. The next stage of this mission, I would argue, is that it it will be to ensure that Mirziyoyev stays in power, of course, uh, but it will be uh, the kind of a push where the propaganda, again, by the establishment, will be that Mirziyoyev is the only person to have Uzbekistan during this complex period, and that no one but him should complete this reform process that he started in 
in 2017 and that changing the leadership would jeopardize that process and that there are ill-intended forces inside and outside of Uzbekistan who want um, the country to go back. You know, that argument will also include maintaining security and sovereignty of Uzbekistan requires Mirziyoyev stay in power and that he's the man to guard the national interests and continue this multi-vector foreign policy he's been advocating and that Uzbekistan will keep its doors open and continue in, you know, in, uh, engaging with everyone, the West, the East, and everyone in between uh, because of Mirzoyev's vision. And that, of course, you know, that reminds the narratives that we have heard before in Uzbekistan um, during um, the Kareem of uh, presidency. But, but I think the international community here cannot be and should not be, obviously, oblivious um, to the fact that Right now, we sense this deep disappointment uh, in Uzbekistan, whoever I talk with, including those who actually, you know, support Mirziyoyev and credit him for the changes that they have seen under him. They say that they expected a different kind of approach. They expected the government to, Mirziyoyev's leadership to demonstrate openness and confidence by now, and that they basically want him to be the democratic leader that Uzbekistan has never seen, you know? They want him to leave power in 2016 when his current term is up and leave someone they understand behind who can offer more and lead Uzbekistan into a new period. Instead, now the, uh, the disappointment is based that, you know, they're seeing the repeat of history and are concluding that Uzbekistan is never able or incapable at this point, despite Mirziyoyev's pledges and promises, and despite this new constitution, to get out of this authoritarian cycle. There is so much pessimism now that some intellectuals argue that the next leader of Uzbekistan, whenever that person emerges, will be the same. You know, promise of reforms, cosmetic changes, they see, and then back to more authoritarian tendencies, constitutional changes, perhaps again, and then just, you know, hold on power through whatever tools available. That is the mood in Uzbekistan. And I think the international community feels it. I mean, at least the diplomats in Tashkent feel it and see it and hear it. And the government does, uh, obviously, uh, you know, as well. But the question is, what do you do with it, right? Steve, then we get to you. And, you know, I was struck when Navahar was talking about this. He was mentioning very, very familiar things that, you know, we got to stick with the guy that we got. He's the one that can get us through these all these problems. And, uh, you know, I mean, this you, this could have come out of Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, something like that. And Mirziyoyev's image is much better uh, internationally than the Tajik or Turkmen president's images are. Uh, certainly the former Turkmen president now head of the uh Mastahati. Um, but like I said, it's the same kind of same kind of thinking. And yet Mirzioev is seems to be more acceptable somehow to the international community. What does this say about new Uzbekistan? Mm, no, and I, I couldn't agree with uh Nabor's comments more just now. And you know, I, I think let's start with the geopolitical context, because you're asking about the international actors. I think one of the one of the advantages that Uzbekistan has and is using, of course, Two factors. Um, one, of course, is um, going back to 2021 and the Taliban reconquering Afghanistan put Uzbekistan again in a position of being, you know, absolutely critical ally um, that the United States and specifically the Pentagon really needed to rely on in a lot of ways, which really, I think, again, hems in the White House and the State Department in many ways in terms of what they're willing to raise on human rights issues, which is always been the tragedy. It's always been the what makes Uzbekistan such a tough case to advocate on is it is the border with Afghanistan in a way this the deal with in a way with the deal with the devil, whether it's the Northern Distribution Network or it's now this context that that we're currently in. The other factor, which Uzbekistan benefits from in some ways, although of course Uzbekistan, like every other country in the post-Soviet space, is pressured by by Russia and by the war in Ukraine, but vis-a-vis -vis the West, I think the United States, the European Union, as they are with other post-Soviet states, are reluctant to pressure Tashkent too hard on human rights, lest they, as they've always feared, push them into the embrace, push them over the line to 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 with to Putin um, or to China for that matter. And I think that also, unfortunately, that psychology that is really self-defeating self on the part of the international actors, the West in particular 
Um, it's a sort of self-censoring of the calls for human rights, which I think ultimately does a disservice to our values um, supporting human rights. So I think those geopolitical factors, of course, are playing in a way to the advantage or relieving some of that pressure from the international community and, and giving Tashkent more room to maneuver. But again, it's a short-term gain and it will, it will, it will be a disservice to everyone. But I think, you know, uh, the, 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 the internal context is really what matters most. I mean, yes, this absolutely, as Nabahor said, it's, it's deja vu. It's, it's a huge disappointment. And as we've seen just in the past week, let's look at those developments. We saw the prominent human rights lawyer of Uzbekistan, Sergei Mayorov, coming out and saying that his client, the leader of the Karakalpak protest, Daulet Murat Tajimuratov, was tortured. Uh, again, almost deja vu, right? Back to the Karima period. And we saw a journalist, Shahida Yakub, being denied entry into Uzbekistan. So, so many things should be absolutely alarm bells that, this is, that, that Uzbekistan needs to be not only praised, but pressured. Otherwise, I think we really could see a dangerous situation. Internally, though, what could ultimately really be decisive? It's not, unfortunately, because the international criticism is muted. It's gas shortages. It's a, another bad winter. It's corruption scandals. It's even the outrage that we saw over this child abuse and sex ring and horizon. Those factors aren't going away. The government cannot silence civil society forever. It does have to be responsive to an incredibly dynamic, incredibly energetic, and talented and interesting populace, which is producing, um, as Nabahar would say, a lot of content, a lot of discussions. So that's not going away. I think it's absolutely right that as Mirzoev ages, as his reform agenda sort of wanes, uh, this is a more dangerous period for an authoritarian regime. They have to understand that, I think, by with this referendum, and with this, specifically the zeroing out of the term, they're really entering a phase which is a cliche, but also very much a minefield and, and presents a lot of dangers to autocrats. And so I would say, I would end again on a hopeful note that Mirzoev still has the power. He is the super president, as Nabor says. And so he could, if he wanted to, come out and clarify that he will not do this. He will not become a lifetime president. Um, and, you know, he could actually make good on those pledges. So let's hold him to that. Let's, let's keep doing that. And that, I can say, as a human rights activist, I will do. Okay, thank you. Uh, and that's actually a really good way to end this, this uh, conversation because we are out of time, unfortunately. But thank you all very much. Uh, big thanks to you, Steve, and to Nabahar, and to Ali Shir for being on the program today. And, of course, uh, thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolis podcast producer in Washington, D.C., and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.